0: are listening to Community Supported Radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Tuesday, October 13th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Carmen's Gardens and Greenhouses, locally owned custom greenhouse and garden supply store, stocking fabrics, down-to-earth brand amendments, and gardening supplies, Open weekdays 10 to 5, Loma Rica Drive, Grass Valley, across from the airport entrance, K-A-R-M-E-N-S-Gardens.com. Chan Family Optometry. Vision Care Team and Dr. Tiffany Chan provide general optometry services, testing, screening, and offering glasses, contacts, and LASIK. Located on Sierra College Drive in Grass Valley. Information, ChanFamilyOptometry.com and Hospice of the Foothills gift and thrift stores, with four locations in Nevada City, Grass Valley, Penn Valley, also rough and ready. All proceeds support end-of-life care for patients and families. Information at hospiceofthefoothills.org. Following NPR headlines and regional weather, we have this week's Water News with Steve Baker, Paul Emery speaks with Eileen Jorgensen about the Windows on History photo display in businesses throughout Nevada County. The glass fire in Northern California has forced thousands of people from their homes, among them residents of Santa Rosa's first government-funded homeless camp, who are now displaced again. NPR has the story. Closing out today's newscast, we have George Rabane with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you Educationally Speaking, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, a press release from the County of Nevada Office of Emergency Services released this afternoon. The National Weather Service in Sacramento has issued a red flag warning, which is in effect from early Wednesday morning through Friday morning. This means critical fire weather conditions are possible for Nevada County due to gusty winds and low humidity. Extreme caution should be taken to prevent a fire. Additionally, PG&E has announced a potential Public Safety Power Shutoff, PSPS, for 224 Nevada County customers Wednesday evening. PG&E has notified customers who may be impacted. This is from a press release issued this afternoon from the County of Nevada Office of Emergency Services. Now it's time for NPR headlines and regional weather.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Abortion was a big focus throughout the second day of Judge Amy Coney Barrett's Senate confirmation hearing. As NPR Sarah McCammon tells us, much could be at stake for abortion rights if Barrett is confirmed. It's impossible
2: to predict for certain how a potential justice will rule on a given issue, but that didn't stop Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee from pressing Barrett about her views on abortion. California Senator Dianne Feinstein asked Barrett about Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that legalized abortion nationwide.
0: Senator, I completely understand why you are asking the question. But again, I can't pre-commit or say yes, I'm going in with some agenda because I'm not.
2: If confirmed, Barrett would be the third Trump nominee on the court, which already has a conservative majority. Nationwide surveys show a majority of Americans support leaving Roe v. Wade in place. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington.
1: Early voting for the November election got underway in Texas today. In Houston, people in line to cast their ballots were determined to be heard. Here's voter Michael Parga. It's very
3: critical that people go out and vote. And I hope that everyone is voting Republican for, for President
1: Trump. And voter Emily Corwin said she supports Joe Biden.
2: I think people are amped up. Uh, my desire to be really passionate about this election is that all of our rights are on
1: the line there were long lines across the state as Texas was one of just five states that did not significantly expand mail-in voting this year. A militia group charged with conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer also discussed Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. As Roberto Roland with member station VPM reports, the revelation came from an FBI agent during a hearing in Michigan today.
4: The FBI agent testified that two of the six men charged in the Michigan case also met with other militia members in June. At the meeting, they discussed taking a sitting governor and mentioned Whitmer and Northam by name. At a press conference in Richmond, Northam blamed President
5: Trump's rhetoric. These threats are not coming, and this rhetoric is not coming from another country. It's coming from Washington, and that I regret, and it needs to stop. There's no
4: indication that Northam was ever in imminent danger or that there was an active plot. In a statement, a White House spokesperson said the president has, quote, continually condemned white supremacy in all forms of hate and accused Northam of sowing division. For NPR News, I'm Roberta Roldan in Richmond.
1: When the full Senate resumes session next week, topic A will be coronavirus relief. Despite repeated starts and stops on stimulus legislation, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell today promised the Senate will take a test procedural vote Monday aimed at moving forward with a relief bill. President Trump is pushing congressional Republicans to, quote, go big with COVID relief. The Dow was down 157 points today. This is NPR. The Supreme Court has stopped the once-a-decade headcount of every U.S. resident from continuing through the end of October. The Trump administration had argued the 2020 census needed to end immediately, so the Census Bureau had enough time to crunch the numbers before a congressionally mandated year-end deadline for turning in figures to determine the number of congressional seats in each state. Cuba, Russia, and China have secured places for themselves on the UN Human Rights Council. Advocacy groups are sounding dismayed, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Russia and Cuba ran unopposed, and China had little competition in its regional group. Human rights groups say the only good news is that Saudi Arabia lost its bid to join the Geneva-based council. Lou Charbonneau, who tracks the UN for Human Rights Watch, says Saudi Arabia's loss is a reminder of the need for more competition in UN elections. U.S. Ambassador Kelly Kraft says the results validate the Trump administration's decision to leave what she calls a deeply corrupted body— She describes the Human Rights Council as a haven for despots and dictators hostile to Israel. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News. A couple of high-profile coronavirus positive tests in the sports world. In Las Vegas, top-ranked golfer Dustin Johnson is out of the CJ Cup after a positive test. He's golf's leading player this year after winning the FedEx Cup last month. And international soccer star Cristiano Ronaldo tested positive for coronavirus, although he's reportedly symptom-free. I'm Louise Schiavone and PR News.
0: Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, tonight in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area will be mostly clear with a low around 57. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 83, and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 59. In Sacramento tonight, skies will be mostly clear with a low around 63. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 89, and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 63. In Truckee tonight, skies will be mostly clear with a low around 36. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 71 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 32. And tonight in Angels Camp, skies will be mostly clear with a low around 62. And tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 86 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 62. There will be a red flag advisory in effect for much of our listening area from early Wednesday morning through Friday morning.
3: This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, Steve, the weather has been just great Uh, just in the last few days. Blue skies, pretty clear, pretty clear, not too much smoke. It's beautiful outside. And mild temperatures that reflect the typical fall season. Uh, Well, what are the weather predictions for the upcoming seasons?
4: Well, look at where we just came from. We have just experienced, all of us, the hottest September in California ever recorded. This is what we're coming out of. That's according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So now, as far as predictions go, go we're told that a strong La Nina is developing. And so that means dry patterns of weather will be harder to break. We're in a dry pattern right now. They, they're they saying that 85% chance of this persisting through the winter. So this heat may be with us for a while, which means we might have a warm winter. Uh, The theme of hot, dry conditions will likely continue in California and the west is what they're saying. So it's not just going to hit California. Typically, the polar wet stream shifts in a La Nina condition, and it goes further north. So Oregon and Washington may receive a lot of water this year, this winter, but we may not.
3: Well, this suggests that climate change is with us again, which is a reminder that we need to prepare for these kinds of more extreme conditions Mm -hmm. being with us more often. I know that uh, the California in general is very responsible in preparing for climate change, but is this seen uniformly across all of our counties as well?
4: Yeah that's a, that's a great question. There are differences in a, both approach and also in the level of effort in various counties. So why don't we just take Sacramento and Yuba counties as an example. Sacramento County, they have a climate change a climate action plan that started in 2009 and it focuses on reducing greenhouse gas emissions to the 1990 levels by this year by 2020. Well, you know what? They met their goal in 2016. And so now they have they have reset that goal and their focus is on an, a, a more uh, accelerated goal. And by the year 2030, they're recognizing that we we really do get have more extreme heat waves, more extreme storms, and we're going to have less rainfall and less snowpack in the Sierras. They, they recognize that. And so the Sac- Sacramento County, they're looking at converting 2,000 county vehicles to renewable energy as a way of helping out. And, and I didn't really know this till just now, they're uh, making a, they're considering making a solar farm at the Sacramento airport. So with all these good things uh, that are being done, however, the Sacramento Board of Supervisors they tend to lean towards a slightly more conservative thought, which means progress may be a bit slower than, than desired. Okay, now Yolo County, Yolo County Supervisor Don Saylor, he says that they see climate change happening in real time, on a real-time basis. And they've approved already of, of $50,000 for funding their advisory committee on this subject. They've even declared a climate emergency, which Sacramento has not done yet. That provides a lot of other benefits when you do that. They started their clean energy plan in 1982, so even earlier in Sacramento. And they finished a gas-to-energy facility at the county landfill. So they're capturing methane now at their county landfill. Uh, Declaring uh, declaring climate change emergencies is a huge, big deal, and, and it's a needed step. And so you can look at that and recognize that it flags those counties that are really accelerating the response to climate change. The consensus is we need to move faster. Counties are doing things, of course, in California, but we need to move more quickly.
3: Well, what is the forecast for Northern California?
4: Uh, You know, unfortunately, the Bay Area is coming out of a dry, unrelenting fire season, as we well know. And now into a minimal rainy season. That's not good. That's not going to make us happy. As I said a moment earlier, uh, NOAA is forecasting an 85% chance that La Nina conditions will continue through the winter. So that puts an exclamation point on this possibly minimal rainy season. The tendency is winter conditions and, and wetter conditions in Oregon and Washington, but not so much here in California. But we, we, you know, we also, when we talk about La Nina and El Nino, we need to remember that the La Nina and El Nino conditions, they're not very good predictors. And they've been proven, it's almost like it's 50-50 and not a really good forecaster. So we have to take all of this with a grain of salt. The, an important component that the researchers are still working on is how does the wind influence these atmospheric river storms that are developed? That's, that is a biggie. If if the polar jet stream does not move as far north as predicted, then maybe Northern California will receive more rain and snow than they're thinking right now. So really I think it's one of these things where we need to just wait
3: and see. Okay, let's bring it home. What does that mean for <laughs> those of us living here in the foothills?
4: We know just like fire, you prepare before the event. Okay, so for fire preparedness, we build and we maintain defensible land and we have an evacuation and backup plans all set up for emergency exits. Okay, that would be for fire preparedness, for for drought conditions, for low water conditions. We prepare by building into our into our properties alternative water supplies and we learn behaviors that allow us to adapt, to conserve, to work together. Very important. Being limited by water uh, as as you and I know, we're on wells, it's no fun <laughs> when you don't have water. In fact, you know that rule. At least in the Greek and Italian communities, they recognize that the fish stinks after three days. Okay, well that applies when you're in a drought, when you when you suddenly don't have enough water. It it gets really old really fast. You know, limited showers, minimal water outside. It's it's not fun. So most of us, I mean, we're not used to to living without a lot of flowing water. And so I think we need to, uh, maybe we can learn from those few people that have really learned these lessons and then apply them in our own way, on our own properties, in our
3: own lives. Thank you, Steve. Look forward to talking with you next week. You're welcome. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been Another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. I'm speaking with Eileen Jorgensen, and we're talking about Windows on History. It's an event that's going to be happening uh, real soon. My first question, Eileen, is tell our listeners exactly what is Windows on History.
6: Thank you, Paul, for having me on to tell the world that Windows on History is happening right now in the beloved Nevada City. It's a month-long exhibit of 35 mural-sized historical photos with accompanying stories placed in shop windows at the approximate location where the photos were taken between 1850
3: and 1920. My goodness. So really? In other, so, in other words, if there is... Um... Oh, a window. Uh, say, say, Yabobo, or something like that. If it's yeah, in that window,
6: exactly, v- then you y- you're going
3: you're gonna see that building during those dates.
6: That's right. And you'll see the view out of those. Win- now, that's one of the most historic little areas of our town, the view of the courthouse. So there's a lot of photos right in there on North Pine. And Commercial is the older part of the town. But we did special emphasis this year with the Ustama Lodge, the Oddfellows on 225 Broad Street. And we accented their suffragette windows with the photos of Lower Broad during the turn of the century.
3: So this has been going on for a few years. Tell us about the the actual history of the event.
6: The history of the history. Fifteen years. This is the 15th year with a hope that this is all refurbished because we didn't even really know about the Nusinan when this all started. It was started by the Business Improvement District, believing that really our history is our gold in our gold country and that we wanted as merchants to accent it. It had been already done with the um, California um, Arts Council years before, so we had a sense of what it could look like, but nothing with the tradition of what we had to offer, because Nevada City was the third most populated city in California in 1856, so these- after San Francisco and Sacramento. So we have a lot of history here that really nobody else has.
3: Yeah, you know, it's interesting to realize how old uh, Nevada City and Grass Valley are compared That's to most right. of the towns in California. Because right. most of them, you know, especially the valley towns, there wasn't towns in those days, yeah. <laughs> you know. But yeah. these go back to the gold rush, of course, when, and the commerce that came during that time needed a town. And That's here right.
6: we are. And um, we uh, became the county seat. We were part of Yuba County and we became the county seat. And that's when a lot, that's what's kept the vibrancy in our town all of these years. And then the foresight of about five city council uh, people, mostly men, I believe, in 1960, when the freeway went through and really destroyed a lot of the historic buildings. And you'll see it in the photos. They got together and it took three years to create an ordinance to maintain what was left. And they call it mother load architecture. And they actually have, uh, we are in the registry of historic places, federal in Washington. And the planning commission is mandated to maintain the mother load architecture for the future. So that's the reason that we just love our town so much is because it's beautiful and quaint and it really is the real deal.
3: Now, these photos, um, uh, when were they collected, and are are new ones being discovered?
6: Well, we had a whole lot to start with, and after 15 years of putting them in windows for a month, we're now down to 35. Um, Our focus is streetscapes, so we have gotten private collections, and, of course, the Foley Library and the Searles Library and the Historical Society have all helped, Um, We haven't really added to it over the years. Um, They're the same photos with captions that we've been putting out. But what's out there now is the best of them. And there is now talk that we um, move ahead and upgrade it and include the Chinese experiences as well as the Nixinan history.
3: So people coming to town uh, wanting to see this, uh, where do they start and, and how... Uh, how do they get involved with with the with the route here of these pictures?
6: Well, it's the perfect COVID adventure. You're on your own in the open air, and you're walking around town, and they are in full view in the windows. And so, I have a list here that I'd like to read of the windows, just to show you the breadth and the length. Sure. All of the historic district have pictures. So. There is not a walking tour, so just on your own. Bonanza, the Hat Store, Mama Madrone, there's two at Utopian Stone, Phoenix Rose, the Nevada City Chocolate Shop, Treats, Earth Store, Soulcraft, Novak's, Magic Carpet, Solstice, J.J. Jackson's, there's two at Asylum Down, there's two at Yubobo, the Classic Cafe, the Bistro 21, Inner Sanctum, the Nevada City Winery, and there's four at the Odd Fellows Ustama Lodge, and there's two at Gold Mountain.
3: Wow, that's quite an effort, I must say.
6: (laughs) And the Gold Mm -hmm. Mountain exhibit is beautiful. Jick has the history of Chinese families that we just added pictures of the Chinese quarter to what he already had, and it's very powerful in both of his windows, so not to be missed.
3: So And it's all up and and, um, visible as we speak.
6: It's visible as we speak until the end of the month.
3: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Eileen. Anything you'd like to add?
6: Um, I think as we go on um, in our lives, I think history is becoming more important to see where we're coming from. But then to walk back into history, into the past, and see how other people did it and how good it feels to be there, um, this all also needs to be supported and so I hope people take the moment to see you know what it was like when there was trees in town and what it was like before telephone poles and um, just the beauty of the costumes people wore in these rough and tumble towns, and of course a lot to do with theater and the arts so we're very fortunate um, to have such fabulous history right right here
3: Eileen Jorgensen, thank you so much for speaking with KVMR, and I'll be out there checking it out.
6: (laughs) Good. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye, everyone.
3: Bye-bye.
0: All right, firefighters in Northern California say they should be able to extinguish a wildfire in wine country in about a week, so some good news. That fire forced thousands of people out of their homes, including people who were living in Santa Rosa's first government-funded camp for homeless people. It gave people who'd spent many years on the streets real homes. Here's Vanessa Roncagno of member station KQED.
2: A homeless resident recorded the evacuation on his phone in late September. Fire. From Napa coming over the, One of the evacuees was Carmen Almejo. We were sitting there uh, having coffee and we could feel
5: the fire and, and we could smell it so well. There's a fire coming up over the hill, it's glowing really bright red. I know we had to evacuate. It's very scary. I never been in a fire like
2: that. Before the homeless camp, she lived in the woods for two years. Almejo is one of the 60 residents of Los Gilicos Village, a transitional shelter funded by the county. Chris Grable manages the village of tiny homes. He's in charge of housing services for St. Vincent de Paul of Sonoma County, and he led the evacuation.
4: Unsheltered folks are used to being evacuated in one form or another, but there's also a lot of trauma from that.
2: He says that made for some tense moments.
4: What I had to say to one woman who was really panicking and really struggles with mental illness was... If you don't go, I have to stay. And my little daughter will not have a father anymore. She immediately was like, Okay, okay, just give me just give me twenty minutes. I was like, we don't have twenty minutes.
2: Grebel got everybody out of Los Gilicos Village, or LGV, that night.
5: We've been evacuated from the LGB, and we're now headed to fairgrounds.
2: Most Los Gilacos evacuees are still at the Sonoma County fairgrounds in tents and trailers. Carmen Almejo and her little dog, Carmencita, are adjusting to life in a trailer shared with two men. Come on,
5: Come on. Okay, I'll open it for you. Good. Microwave and stove and refrigerator and yeah, the two-pound pet.
2: All these appliances, the running water, air conditioning, they still feel like luxuries to 63-year-old Almejon. I used to live underneath the bridge uh, on 6th Street. She was on the streets for almost a decade. She'd only been living in her tiny home at Los Gilocos Village for two weeks when the fire came through. It destroyed four of the tiny houses and damaged another two. It could be months before residents are allowed to return. Without having a place,
5: you know, to press your head or go to the bathroom or basic things, what do you have, you know? And I don't want to be there again. I'm sure it's going to be okay.
2: For many of these people, another displacement would just compound the trauma, says shelter manager Chris Grable.
4: I can tell you right now that I will fight like hell for these folks to be here as long as they need to be, to be in a safe, comfortable living situation after what they've been through.
2: Of 120 people who've lived at Los Gilocos Village since it opened early this year, about 30 of them were able to move into permanent supportive housing. Almost as many were in the process of securing it. Armejo was just starting to work with a case manager. That's stalled for now. But she says she's grateful for the resources here at the fairgrounds, like the free vet services for her dog. I'm going to take her in and give her her
4: pedicure and bring her right back to you. you.
2: Because of the smoke and heat, Grable wants to bring in more trailers and get people out of tents.
4: I hope that we have the resources to follow through with that promise.
2: And he hopes everyone in the trailers will be able to stay here until a better option is available. For NPR News, I'm Vanessa Rancano in Santa Rosa, California.
0: Closing out today's newscast, we have George Rabein with a commentary.
5: Our left has been telling Republicans for years that Democrats are the party of intellectuals and the highly educated. Republicans are viewed by the left as mostly Bible-thumping and gun-toting knuckle-draggers, categorized simply as those irredeemable deplorables on our political landscape. Among the many deficits allegedly shared by those on the right is their disdain for science— which the Democratic Party claims is the guiding star for their public policies and gives imprimatur to the pronouncements of their elites. The strongest substance for that belief is the oft-cited ratio of white college graduates who claim party affiliation. The Atlantic sits solidly on the throne of left-wing wisdom and light from whence it advises us that America is divided by education and asserts that, quote, The gulf between the party identification of white voters with college degrees and those without is growing rapidly. Trump is widening it, Actually, there is no evidence for that. And the National Center for Educational Statistics has shown a growing fraction of those of all races and ethnicities who obtain bachelors or higher degrees. What really is more than puzzling is the lack of published numbers on party totals of those who have a four-year college degree or higher. It is well known that Democrats enjoy higher percentages of black and Hispanic members, but we don't know how many of these with college degrees make up or contribute to each party's cohort of the well-educated. The best we can tell from Pew Research is that, quote, about a third, 34% of those with college degree or more education identify as Democrats compared with 24% who identify as Republicans. Note that this doesn't answer what fraction of Democrats versus Republicans have a college degree or more. So let's attempt to leapfrog this gap in our knowledge and find out how the parties react to the most up-to-date science regarding COVID-19. The World Health Organization has recently concluded that lockdowns as a pandemic response don't work and instead do great damage to the poorest segments of the world's population. This conclusion was amplified by last week's publication of the Greater Barrington Declaration, drafted by health scientists from Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford, and co-signed by thousands of professionals from all walks. Its authors cite extensive clinical evidence to confirm the WHO conclusion and strongly recommend that all nations immediately stand down from their ineffective and insane lockdown policies. Even more strongly, they conclude that the additional deaths and morbidities on top of the economic disasters caused by such policies actually constitute, quote, crimes against humanity of the kind last litigated in Nuremberg in 1946. For reasons we don't have time for here, the left-wing news outlets have covered none of this, and apparently the country's declared Democrats don't look much beyond what they are told on MSNBC, CNN, et al. So when Gallup assembled a recent panel for a survey on how men and women of both parties view and respond to COVID-19, They discovered and published some interesting results which reflect on the educational levels as characterized by Democrats. Gallup asked the panel questions about concern over catching the virus, concern about exposure at work, avoid going to public places, and so on. They concluded by asking who would be, quote, ready to return to normal activities right now. Overwhelmingly, the results indicated that Democrats were significantly more fearful of the pandemic than Republicans, and women of both parties were more hesitant than men to interpret the science news that went counter to that released within the Democrat narrative about proper responses that recommend ongoing lockdowns, widespread social distancing, and perpetual wearing of masks. Given the widely published mortality statistics— the presented results do not bode well for the party that claims to be more educated and attuned to the findings and contentions of science. These conclusions explain why people in liberal states like California continue to be both docile and sanguine about their state's ongoing draconian COVID-19 response policies, policies no longer supported by scientific consensus or internationally reputable scientists and clinicians it is clear that America's public policy responses to this pandemic have been completely co-opted to serve greater political agendas in this election year. My name is Rubain, and I also expand on this and related themes on Rubain's ruminations, where the addended transcript of this commentary is posted with additional data and relevant links, and where such issues are debated extensively. However, my views are not necessarily shared by KVMR. Thank you for listening.
0: That's our newscast for this evening. Coming up next, we bring you Educationally Speaking and At 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Productions, I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a fabulous evening.